for more than 3,300 years, the Jewish people have preserved and transmitted their wisdom about how to live life. From generation to generation, parents taught their children, teachers taught their students, in a living chain that stretches back to the giving of that great wisdom in the Sinai Desert. Perhaps never has there been a generation more desperately in need of this ancient wisdom. A wisdom today made available to the English-speaking world by scholars like Lawrence Kellerman. Sit back and enjoy while Lawrence Kellerman takes you on an adventure into the world of ancient wisdom for modern minds. In 1967, just after the war had finished here in Israel, we had soldiers who were stationed in Egypt and needed chizuk. They thought they had seen miracles. And they wanted chizuk encouragement from somebody who was religious. Soldiers were not religious. And the Israeli army decided to fly into Egypt, uh, a very dynamic Rav, who they thought would inspire the troops. So they flew this, this rabbi to Egypt, and there he gave a schmooze to the troops. And in the schmooze, he told them over some Jewish concepts. Now, if, if, if someone asked me, what would you tell a bunch of secular Jews about Judaism to inspire them to get them started? You tell them over things that are fairly basic, but uh, interesting. Okay. What Revolba decided to tell over to these, to these soldiers was astoundingly deep. I've been studying what, that speech that he gave to them for a few years. I still don't understand it. I'm going to say over a little bit about what he said, and then I'm going to show you some practical implications of what he said and how you can actually put it to use in, 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 in our own lives. Revolta explained that here in Olam Hazeh, there are really two parallel universes. This is not a metaphor. This is literal. And you can dwell in either one of these parallel universes, no matter what your apparent physical position on the planet is, from that position you can flip back and forth between these two universes. One of these universes is called the Olam Haididus. The world of, I don't know how we translate Haididus, connection, intimacy, relationship. And the other universe is called the Olam of Pachad Zarut, the world of Pachad, fear, anxiety, panic, slash Zarut. Zarut is disconnection, uh, isolation, aloneness, estrangement. There's these two universes, the world of Yedidus and the world of disconnection. Revolve explained further. Contrary to popular belief, there are two gods. There's one with a capital G and one with a lowercase g. The one with a capital G, his name is Hashem Echad, the God of one. When we say that God is one, we don't mean that there aren't two of him. That's very true. It's much deeper. 
When we say Hashem Echad, God is one, we mean He's one, He's a unity, there's nothing outside of Him. He is total connection. Which is why Hashem Echad rules over the world of Yedidus. Because since He's total connection, there's nothing outside of Him, there's no separation, there's no moving parts. Therefore, everything is connected and one and close. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Hashem Echad, He created a second God. God with a small g. That, jo- that God is a servant of His, it does exactly what He tells it to do. That God is astri- described in the Gemara and Shabbos. The Gemara and Shabbos says, Ezehu Elzar Shehu B'Gufu Adam. Who is the El, the God of Zar, who dwells in the body of a person? Who is the God of Zar? Zar is that kingdom of disconnection. That word Zar is the same as the word Zarut. Here in Eretz Yisrael, when you want to indicate that there's no parking in this parking lot other than for those people who work for our company, you put up a sign and the sign says, Ein Chanaya, there's no parking, Le for Zarim. There's no parking for those we're disconnected from, that we have no relationship with. So, the God of Zar is the God of disconnection, isolation, and loneliness. He rules over the world of Zarut, and there's two parallel universes, and at this moment, you're either in one of them or you're in the other. You're in the Olam of Yedidus or you're in the Olam of Zarut. Okay, there's a lot to say about this topic. I want to extract one interesting practical Nakuda. Since at any given moment, I either live in the world of connection, closeness, and relationship, the world of Yedidus, or I live in the world of Pachad, Zarut, what that means is that to the extent that I'm in love, I won't feel fear. And with a minor exception, which I'll mention shortly, to the extent that I feel fear, that means I am not in love. Because love and fear are opposites. We often think that love and hatred are, but they're not. Love and hatred go on the same side. Love and fear are the opposites. What's the practical implication of this? It turns out that the root of needless fear, and we'll talk about valuable fear later, but the root of needless fear is going to end up being self-imposed isolation. To the extent that I disconnect myself, to that extent I throw myself into the Olam Pachat, Zarut. Okay, I'm going to give you three examples, three illustrations of how the moment that I leave the world of love the moment that I disconnect, when I impose upon myself isolation, I immediately go into the world of fear. Okay, the first is as follows. Isolation from Hashem creates fear. There's a fascinating pasuk in Bamidbar, Yud Dalad Tes. The pasuk reads, Ach! 
Hashem al Timrodu. Just don't rebel against God. Ve'atem al Tirau. And you shouldn't fear God. Rashi here is bothered. Rashi says there's an extra word in the Pasuk. If in classical biblical Hebrew you want to say, don't rebel against God and don't be afraid, so in classical biblical Hebrew you would say, Ach Bashem Altimrodu, the Altirau. Just don't rebel against God and don't be afraid. Rashi says, what is the extra word Atem doing there? What is that? What is that extra Atem? So Rashi says, Okay, this is one of those Rashis that is incredibly deep, extraordinarily practical, and no one gets. I'm embarrassed to say, I read this Rashi probably a hundred times, and I never paid attention to what it was saying. Rashi's saying that there aren't two separate statements here. There's one serial statement with cause and effect. It's not two separate commandments. Don't rebel against God and don't be afraid. It's one commandment. Don't rebel against God. And as a result of that, you will not be afraid. So now this is, from a psychological perspective, incredibly deep. You could, you could create your own Torah psychology just studying the Rishonim. What do you see here? You see that if you won't rebel against God, you won't be afraid. There's a Gemar Brachos that illustrates this beautifully. The Gemar Brachos, Tav Samach, tells the following story. There was a certain Talmud that was following Rabbi Shmael, who was walking through the Shuk. Shuk of Zion. Shri Bishmael saw that this particular Talmud had anxiety. He detected in him a certain, certain level of anxiousness, a paranoia. What happened? Bishmael turned to the Talmud and he said, Chata'at. You did some sort of a sin. You're a sinner. So the boy looked at him in shock. Shri Bishmael said, How do I know? Because the Pasuk says, Those who live in Sion and are afraid, those are the people who do Averis. So of course the boy probably felt terrible because immediately he became defensive and he felt he was, he was being accused of something by his Rebbe. He didn't want to be accused. So the boy said, The boy said back, but the Pasuk says, In Mishlei, Ashrei Adam Tamid. How fortunate is the person who's always afraid? Rebbe, don't you? Why do you say that I did Averis? Don't you see from the Pasuk it says, it's a mile, it's a great thing to be afraid. So maybe I'm a big tzaddik and that's why I'm afraid. Ashri Adam Afachet Tamid, Tamid. Amarlei, Rishmael said back, Ahubadivay Torah When is it a mile? When is it considered to be a great thing to be afraid? There's a special category of fear, a subcategory, which we're going to speak about later on, called Divrei Torah. Okay, now it's not at all obvious what this subcategory is, but there is a time when a person could be afraid, not because they separated themselves from God, but the vast majority of times that a person is afraid, why are they afraid? Chata'at. It's caused by a sin. Why? As soon as I leave the world of intimacy, connection, relationship with God, 
I blasted myself out of that universe. I teleported myself into a new universe. When I landed that new universe, where am I standing? I'm standing in the world of Pachad. Once I'm in that universe, there's only one thing I can experience. There's only one thing I can feel. Anxiety. And the more time that I spend in that world of Pachad, the more anxious I'll become. I mean, eventually, I will not be able to function without drugs. It will not be possible unless I take anti-anxiety medicine. You can't live in that world. It's either you take the drugs or you have to teletransport yourself back into the world of love. That's the only options available. So I thought this, again, from a psychological perspective, I thought it was so interesting. So I started to look at this a little bit and I found something fascinating. There's a pasuk in Dvari, Kaf Ches, 28. So it's talking there about how the Jews are prepared to go into battle. If we want to go to a war, what do we have to do first? So it talks all about how different people coach the Jews. And then the Pesach says, The the police who are in charge of the Jewish people, so they then start to speak to the, to the, to the Jews, and they say to them, Amru, uh, is there anybody here who is afraid we're about to go into battle is there anyone here who is afraid or has a soft heart listen you can go back to your dorm rooms you, you, don't, you don't have to come out with, if, if you're afraid you don't have to come so here the Or HaChaim says something fantastic the Or HaChaim says like this he says Rabbi Hussein is al Amru our rabbis taught us this person who's afraid to go into battle, his language is, they're afraid from, their fear is stemming from the sins that are in their hand. That is, Hashem said to me, Leib, could you do me a favor? Shabbos? No problem, big guy. This one's for you. Yeah. Uh, Kashras, you got it. What's the big deal? I'm there. Cover your elbows. You name it. Right. Anything you want. Yeah. I'm there. Hashem, I'm there. Hashem then says, Leib, could you not speak Lashon Hara? Oh, man. But I had this juicy piece I wanted to say about somebody. So at that point, when I say the Lashon Hara, what I'm doing is I'm ignoring my spouse's preference. She said to me, Shrina, she said to me, Leib, I prefer if you don't. And I'm like, jump in a lake, man. I want to speak Lashon Hara. Go away. What's going on here? I'm shattering the relationship. I just walked away from the preferences of my lover. I don't care what my lover says. I'm going to do what I want. Boom! World of isolation, the Orachim says. What happens next? He says... Perush al derech Amram. If I'm going to explain what's going on here, he says it's like the pasuk says, "Pachlu b'tzion chataim." Those people in Sion who are afraid, they have sins. Shikomi shish biado averus. Anyone who has sins, libo yared v'chared. The person's heart is afraid and it's terrified. Me'atzmo from himself. Meaning, there's nothing out there that I'm afraid of. If I sit with a therapist long enough, the therapist might actually be able to say, well, I think it's this that you're afraid of, or I think it's that that you're afraid of. But the reality is, people aren't afraid of things. The reality is, people are afraid. Now, where do you choose to project your fear? 
You know, I'll say it's coming from that or I'll say it's coming from that. But the reality is, I'm just afraid. Where does the fear come from? Me'atzmo, he says. These guys, they're going out to war. Why doesn't the Orachim say they're afraid of Palestinians? Because the Orachim knows they're not. They transported themselves into the world of isolation. Now, they're just, I'm afraid. Of themselves, they're afraid. Okay, here it gets, it gets sort of scary. The Orachim says, even if the guy doesn't know that he did an Avera, like, he, he didn't even know there was such a halacha. The fear that comes into his heart when he's facing a war, that is Todiehu, that informs him that he's got a Veros. The rabbis then tried to say, well, what kind of Averas would cause somebody to be afraid? And the Orchaim then lists off the minimal threshold of an Avera that would cause somebody to be afraid. The threshold that he lists off is, even if the only Avera the guy ever did in his life was, once, he spoke between Yishtabach and Yotzer, the first Baruch of Kriyat there was a t- in between there he, he's, he's, someone said to him is this the way to the restroom and he said yeah and because of that now he's going to be terrified to walk because he didn't have error so he transported himself out because he, he did something which was not like the will of his lover that bounced him into the world of isolation now he's afraid okay now you can imagine if that will do the job how much more so any of the other error and the guy doesn't even know that it was an error and yet he gets bounced into that world someone showed me I don't read Zohar but if you do, I'll tell you where it is. Yeah? Someone showed me this is based on a Zohar in Bereshi's Kuftzadi Ches Amid Base. Yeah? There the Zohar says anyone who does an Avera, so he says this person will have constant fear and he won't know the cause of the fear. Again, it could be he could be persuaded this is really the cause, but the truth is that's not the cause. He's just afraid. Okay, now, this all sounds pretty spooky. I want to see if, in fact, there's some serious macor for this idea that separating myself from Hashem would actually put me into a state of fear. So, okay, I'm a Litvak. I started looking through the, the mainstream sources. I went to the Beis Yosef. So, with Yosef Cairo, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, in the Beis Yosef, Simon Nun Dalid, writes the following. Garcinin Birushalmi, the Talmud Yerushalmi says, Hamasaper ben Yishtabach liyotzer, someone who speaks between Yishtabach and Yotzer, or Avera, Hibiado, the Choser Alea me Marche HaMilchama. And because of that, he goes back from the front lines. Now you wouldn't know what the Orchai, what the, what the, what the um, Shulchan Aruch was writing about unless you went back and looked at the Pasuk. The Pasuk says exactly why he's going back from the front lines. Uh, anyone here afraid? Those people who raised their hands said they were afraid, those are the ones we sent back to the dorms. And the Shulchan Aruch says, who are those people who were afraid? Those who had Or Ha'avera. It's like some hint of a sin that was enough to cause the fear. Wait, it gets better. There's an explicit Gemara in Pesachim. I ran across this. The Gemara in Pesachim, Dav Kufiud Beis Amad Aleph, writes as follows. The 
Mesukar, that is someone who donates blood. If you're, if you're a blood donor. In the old days, they used to donate blood not to any particular person. They used to donate it to the ground. Because if you had a headache or something like that, you would go to a doctor and he would stick a needle in and you'd like drain a pint or so and you'd feel much better. Yeah? It was bloodletting. It was a recreational thing or a, uh, a therapeutic procedure. Today, you get your feet massaged or you smell spices or something. But in those days, what they used to do was they used to you know, drop a pint of blood and they felt much better. So it says, somebody who goes and has their blood let... Yeah. Or today you go to, you go down to the Mogan Devita Dome and you donate a pint of blood. He says, if this person gives their blood, and after giving the blood, they don't go and wash their hands, one, two, three, four, five, six. If they don't do that, according to Gras, seven, eight. If they don't go and wash their hands, alternately pouring water back and forth on their hands, starting with the right hand, he says, this person will be afraid for seven days. He'll experience seven days of anxiety. After seven days, anxiety will start to go down. He says, a person who gets a haircut and they don't wash their hands after getting the haircut, they'll experience anxiety for three days. By the way, you don't have to go to a formal lady who cuts your hair. It can just be you cut off a piece of hair. You cut off a piece of hair, then don't wash the hands, cause three days of anxiety. What about if somebody cuts their fingernails or bites one off? So he says if they don't wash their hands immediately, then the person will end up being afraid for 24 hours. They'll end up being in a state of anxiety for 24 hours. So we would expect that people who don't know the halacha and walk around biting their fingernails, they should be experiencing significant levels of anxiety. That's normal. All this stuff, by the way, is brought down in the Shulchan Aruch in... So here we have the Shulchan Orach himself is giving guidance for how to reduce anxiety in life. And it's guidance that's very, very different from most of what you hear in the streets today. But this is all true. I mean, like, this works. Step number one, to summarize. If I isolate myself from a Kodesh Baruch Hu, how do you do that, Averis? I'll end up in a state of anxiety. Right? How do I relieve the anxiety? So I have to break the isolation, go back into the world of Yedidus, talk to Hashem, do tshuva, boom, I should be then able to relieve the anxiety. Section 2. There's another kind of isolation that can happen, and that is I can impose isolation on myself, isolation from another person. Especially a spouse. But the truth is, isolation from any person will do the job. Once I isolate myself, I go into a state of fear. Okay. I've been playing with this concept for a couple of years now. When I say playing with it, I mean I've been playing with it therapeutically. I've been using it in counseling. So I discovered something fascinating. Over these, these last couple of years... I had a feeling often when I was counseling a husband and wife who were fighting with each other that a lot of the aggression that I was perceiving was coming from fear. So I started testing it. So I recently had a case where a fellow had been away on a trip. He came home after the trip and he did not give his wife proper attention when he came home from the trip. 
he should have given his wife more attention he didn't the woman was very upset with him and she's like you know you've been away this whole time and now when you come home like you know it's straight off to work and like what about me I'm your wife and she was, she was very upset she didn't say it in a nice way what ended up happening was he attacked her I mean emotionally and when he attacked her she attacked him okay when I got involved they hadn't spoken for three days and until I realized what was wrong another couple of days passed where they weren't speaking finally I, it, it hit me what was going on so I, I said to him I think she's afraid that you're going to attack her and because she's afraid that you're going to attack her so she's attacking you first I think that's what's happening like if you have an animal that's scared or that's wounded so he's very vulnerable and you approach the animal you always see that the animal does what? say he he'll growl he'll bark he'll snarl yeah he may attack why? because he's afraid he attacks I said to this fellow I think this is what's going on so he said to me I said to him listen why don't you try the opposite try apologizing to her and see what happens he said to me Lab, if I would apologize to her then she'll eat me alive he said it he was afraid and the reason he was attacking was to hold her off because as long as he was attacking her he felt he could defend himself but if he would show his vulnerability if he would apologize and say I made a mistake at that point he was terrified she was going to attack him once I realized that it was the isolation he didn't treat his wife properly boom, isolation that isolation created fear in him that fear in him caused him to attack his wife once he attacked his wife his wife felt fear so she went into the world of isolation once she was in the world of isolation she then attacked once I realized this is the way that it functions so I, I started using a new therapy so I have this Shalom Bias therapy which I was completely mechadesh on my own and then I realized I had heard it before here's what I started to do what I would do is when a couple got into a fight I would go to the man and I would say to him what happened exactly and he would tell me I'd go to the woman and I would say what happened exactly and she would tell me then I would go back to the woman and I'd say to her listen I, I just spoke to your husband about this he feels terrible he told me it's all his fault and like he wants to apologize but he's afraid if he apologizes you're going to attack him so she says he said it's all his fault he completely said he took full responsibility he wants to make up with you now he just doesn't know how to do it so she's really well I'd like to talk to him I said listen because he's like being defensive I think when you approach him what you should do is just so that he like because he's so afraid you're going to attack why don't you like even though it's not your fault why don't you apologize to him and when you apologize to him then he won't feel so defensive and afraid so she says but it's not my fault I, said, I, I, I know I know but like just to, just like you know lie to him say it's your fault just to keep his defenses low she says okay fine okay just a minute I go and I speak to him and I tell him I just came from your wife she says it's all her fault completely she takes full responsibility does this sound familiar to you? do you understand why he did it now? 
This was Aaron Cohen's technique. Why did he do it? What he was trying to do was, he was trying to reduce the level of fear. When the couple comes together and they don't feel they're going to be attacked, they're not living in the world of fear anymore. When they're not living in the world of fear, then what's possible? If you're not in the world of fear, then you're living in the world of... Boom! Love! And the relationship works. On my own, I realize this is how it has to be. And then I woke up and said, Idiot! Iron Coin said it a long time ago. Like, do you see? There's a whole psychological system here. Different from every system of psychology on the planet. This one was written by God. And it works. Works terrific. Works better than anything I've ever seen. When we do a virus, so to speak, against other people, we start to feel afraid. That is, when we isolate ourselves, we start to feel afraid. And the way to relieve the fear is to dive back into connection again. Okay, now the problem is, once you're afraid, it's hard to dive back into connection. If you have a coach telling you, there's nothing to be afraid of, she's going to apologize, he's going to apologize, then it's much easier. But if you don't have a coach, the only thing you can do is walk very bravely back into the situation again. So for example, there's a woman who offended you. And you're really, really mad, and you want to rip her, and you, there's no relationship here whatsoever. Now you know you're living in the world of fear. So what you really should do is just make up with her and you'll be fine. But you're afraid to make up with her. Because you're afraid. You're afraid. I mean, I, you can direct your fear and say, well, you're afraid she's going to attack you, like this guy said about his wife. But the truth is, you're not afraid she's going to attack you. That's not the truth. The truth is, you're just afraid. You're projecting it into that she's going to attack you. What do you do? So, the first time it's going to be very frightening for you. But what you do is, you just walk back in the situation. And you say in a very sweet voice, I'm so sorry, it's all my fault. Relieve her fear. Get her out of the world of fear so that she doesn't attack you. Once you go back in and you try to rebuild the relationship, your fear will go away as well. Right? You'll feel confident. You'll feel relaxed. In most of these arguments, what's the body language? It looks like this. And like, you're holding, you're holding, you're defensive. Right? And it's, or you turn sideways. It's always, there's some body language indicating, I'm afraid you're going to hurt me. When you actually open yourself up to the world of relationship again, the fear goes away. There is a third realm in which self-imposed isolation can cause fear. Now you know where this is going. I spoke about isolation from Hashem. I spoke about isolation from another person. So you know there's one other kind of isolation that can cause tremendous fear. And that's isolation from self. There's really two of you. There's an ashama and a goof. Well, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, wait, you misunderstood me. You thought I meant like there's a more spiritual aspect of you and there's a less spiritual aspect of you. No, 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 that's not what I meant. There are two of you. No, there goes again, you misunderstood. Read my lips. There's two. There's two separate creatures that are living in one dira. That's what's going on here. There's one apartment. And both of you are there. By the way, I can prove to you there's two. When you die, the soul actually leaves. Yeah? The body separates, the soul separates, they go to different places, they hang out in different places for a period. Eventually they come back together again at Tchias Amasim, at the revival of the dead. But there are two separate beings. 
sometimes when I counsel couples, I realize the problem is that this spouse does not realize, this man does not realize that he's married. At least he acts like he's not married. Like, you know, if you ask him, like, what's that, you know, what's that ring on your finger? He'll say, oh, yeah, I, that's, what, that's a wife. Yes, I remember. Yeah. But, but when, if you look at his behavior over a 24, 40-hour period, you would have no indication whatsoever he's married. Or you look at her behavior. You would never believe that she actually has a husband based on her behavior. People are living in the house with somebody they don't know. There are many people who, if you follow them 24, 48, 72 hours, there would be no indication that they're actually living in their house with somebody else. There's no indication they're aware of a soul. They don't realize it's, they're like these these spouses that have that have shalom bias problems. There's many people who they live as if they're a body. By the way, there's a small percentage of people who live as if they're just a soul, and they they never take care of their body. It's all spiritual for them. And in in both of these cases, what you're looking at is a real shalom bias problem. These people are in a t- state of total isolation. There is no relationship taking place in the self. The self being these two creatures. They don't talk. There's, no, there's nothing happening there. I'll give you an example. When Revolba, Sichron Livrocha, had his yeshiva, he asked the boys to please go out for a walk alone. And it was a normal thing that every person in the yeshiva had to go for a walk alone. There was a guy who came into the yeshiva. A crack learner. I mean, just like a really smart, wise, terrific guy with tremendous pekias. He had incredible literacy in in Talmudic sources. Because he was one of the best learners in in the building, even though he never took his walk, no one said anything to him. None of the other guys, even though he was breaking the rules, he never took the walk, no one said anything. One day, Revolba walks up to this boy. He's been there quite a while already. And Revolba says to him, Excuse me, have you taken your walk today? So the boy looks up and says, Oh, come on, you know, I'm learning, I'm learning. So Revolba says, I see, but I was curious, did you take your walk today? So the boy says, uh, You know, like, it's Bittel Torah, you know, like, I came here to learn Torah. So Revolba said, I really think you should take the walk. So he says, Okay, but not now. Revolba said, no, I think you should take the walk now. And Revolba helped him out of his chair, brought him to the door, and threw him out of the building. The boy headed off. Revolba came, it's supposed to be a one-hour walk. Revolba came, he sat down. Fifteen minutes later, Revolba looks up, he sees the boy's back in the basement just learning. He walks over to the boy, and he says to him, what are you doing here? So the boy said, the one thing that you should never, ever say to a Balmoser. Revolba said, what are you doing here? The boy said, stop. Which means, cause, whatever, I'm just here. So Revolba said, no, not stop. And Revolba started to ask him questions to figure out what had happened. So Revolba said to him, when you were outside, uh, works better in Hebrew. When you were outside, did you run into a Kelovzar? Did you meet a strange dog? He scared you, maybe? So boy looks up Revolva and says, No. So Revolva thinks, Perhaps you uh, 
Perhaps you met an Adam czar, you met a strange man. He scared you? Spoy says, No. Servoba looked at him and he said, Yeah. You met a strange man and he scared you. You ran into yourself. That was terrifying. You've never met this person before. Like, it didn't feel comfortable. Who is this person? So you ran back home. Sometimes I tell my Talmidos, my Talmidim, you should get to know yourself. So they say, how? So it's a very interesting question. They really have no clue how to get to know themselves. So I usually engage in the following dialogue. I say to them, listen, I could use some advice. Uh, imagine the following. Uh, I just met my wife. Imagine I'm not married to her yet. I just met my wife. And she seems like a very interesting person. I would like to get to know her. What should I do? So what would you say to me? If I said, I want to like, get to know her, what should I do? What would you say? Say? Ask. Ask her about herself. I should talk to her. Ask her about herself. What do you like? What do you dream about? What are you afraid of? Like, what, you know, what's important to you? I should talk to her. Yeah? So I would say to this person, you want to get to know yourself. That is, you want to get to know your nisham a little bit. Or perhaps your nisham wants to get to know your goof a little bit. So the, the most obvious thing to do is, why don't you talk? So, of course, what do people say? Well, like, uh, to myself? Like, they'll say I'm not well. Okay. Here, I have an amazing, again, Torah psychological insight. I have a, a close friend who I admire tremendously. He's a brilliant psychologist. I love spending time with this man. Twice, I have flown to the United States just to talk to him. He's an amazing person. The first time that I met him, he was doing research in what the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual calls a disease by the name of MPD, Multiple Personality Disorder. So he started to talk to me about this thing, and I realized i got to talk to this man. He has tremendous insight. MPD is when inside of a single person you can have multiple fully developed personalities. And if, if, if you've ever heard the stories or read the reports of such things, it can be pretty far out. Uh, he told me he once got a phone call. And uh, he said, hello. Silence. Hello. Silence. He hangs up. The phone rings again. Hello? Hello? He had a funny feeling. He said, because he was doing so much work in MPD, and it could have been one of his MPD patients, he said, is there anyone there who makes appointments? And his voice came back, yes, I'm the one who makes appointments. I'd like to make an appointment for today. Okay. By the way, this person 
was an extraordinarily competent uh, uh, director of a chain store. She was incredibly bright, highly competent, got a tremendous amount done. She just happened to have like about four or five different people living inside of her. And each one of these was a fully developed personality. In the old days, he told me, the therapy for this was that they would try to unify all of the personalities back into one. Now this is the classic Western worldview, that there's only supposed to be one. So they would try to unify all the personalities. Almost invariably, this would end up in a suicide. Or at least, the police investigators always thought it was a suicide. However, the psychologists who really understood knew it was not a suicide. It was a homicide. Because one of the personalities was cooperating and allowing all the other personalities to be wiped out. And so that personality was threatened, so that personality had to fight back, so they killed the one that was wiping the bag because they were living in one apartment building. Today he told me, the state of the art in multiple personality disorder is family therapy. They bring all the personalities into a room and they have them all talk and they, they learn, teach them to be cooperative and supportive and helpful to each other, etc. Okay, now, we think this is crazy. Like, what are you doing? There's only one of you. Why do we think that way? Because we've been brainwashed by another sick model. We think there's only one of us. And the reality is, there isn't just one of us. Right? Personally, I can speak for myself. Which one of us? That one. Okay, here we go. Uh, I have a certain fully developed, thoroughly developed personality, which is the teacher. It's 3D, you can turn it, you can test it. It's like, it's a real person. I have a certain personality, which is different than that personality. It's a different human being, which is the father. I have a different personality, which is the son. I have a different one, which is the husband. I once experienced a tremendous stress. I was teaching, and my parents were visiting, and my parents said they wanted to come and watch me teach, right? which they had never done. And I remember my father, after the lecture, he looked at me and he said, Labe, like, do they pay to come to this program? I said, yeah. He says, I don't get it. I can listen to you for free and I don't want to. <laughs> so, so they came and they sat. And I remember as I was lecturing, I kept having this crisis. Who am I? Am I the son or am I the teacher? And it was hard for me to hold both personalities simultaneously because there's really two of us. The more that you get to know yourself, the more that you're going to realize there's multiple personalities in there. Minimally, minimally, there's a body and there's a soul. How can they get to know each other? Well, why don't you take one of them out on a date? Okay, now, I'm not recommending that you speak to yourself in public. (laughs) However, I am recommending you do it in private. That you could say to your neshama, how's it going? Are you enjoying the summer? Oh, I'm talking, I'm a great, I love the Lima Torah, it's fantastic. And, and, and Goof, how are you doing? Well, I sort of wish we were going to a lot a couple days earlier, but I guess I can tolerate a few more days of this. When's dinner? <laughs> the more that I'm aware of the preferences and the subtleties of these personalities the more of a relationship I can build between them and the more cooperative they can be. And I can say to my goof, I'm so proud of you. You've been sitting here for an hour and 15 minutes listening to this Torah and you sat and you really paid attention 
Like, that was an amazing thing. You know what? I'm going to give you an ice cream tonight. And in this way, the, the relationship of lovers can actually be developed. I promised I would speak to you before we left tonight about a certain kind of fear which is okay which is not caused by theirs at all and there's no need for therapy it's a, it's a fear that you want to preserve and that was this pacha that we said existed with divrei Torah that's a good kind of fear what is that exactly? so I believe it's illustrated by Gamor and Gittin the Gemara in Gittin, Daf Nun Hayamid Beis, it's a very famous Gemara, probably everybody here knows it, and a lot of people are going to be speaking about it over the next few weeks. The Gemara in Gittin starts off like this, Amr Biochanan, My Dichtiv, what's meant by the Pasuk, Ashre Adam Mefached Tamid, how fortunate is the person who is always afraid. Okay, now, keep in mind, that was Rabbi Yochanan's question and the story that is about to follow is the answer to that question so keep trying to figure out how does the story answer the question okay, here comes the story Akamsa ubar kamsa charu Yerushalayim Yerushalayim was destroyed because of kamsa and bar kamsa dahu gava kamsa there was a fellow who liked kamsa ubal dabave bar kamsa and he was in a fight with bar kamsa Avad Sudasa, this fellow, made a party. He said to his servant, Please go and invite Kamsa to my party. I really like Kamsa. What happened? So he went, Azal Aisi laid Bar Kamsa. The servant went and he invited Bar Kamsa, who was this guy's enemy. Now, I, and when I, the first time I read this Gemara, I thought it was strange that Bar Kamsa actually showed up. Like, is he crazy? Clearly, this guy didn't like him. Why did Bar Kamsa show up? So now I understand what happened. When the servant came and said that my friend wants to invite you, Bar Kamsa, please come to the party, that lack of isolation, that elimination of isolation, because there was a party happening, he was invited to the party, that eliminated Bar Kamsa's fear. So Bar because he was transported back into the world of love, he wasn't afraid, he came to the party. What happened? Asa Ashhedahu Yasif. So the, the host came and he saw Bar sitting there. Amarle, he said to him, Mikhtiahu Gavra, Baldabava, Dahu Gavrahu. You are the guy who I'm fighting with. Like, what are you doing here? My Baisacha, what do you want? Come, poke, get up, get out! Amarle, Barkamsa was so embarrassed. There was like a hundred people sitting there, and he was about to get thrown out of the room. He said, Hold the Asai, since I already came. If you'll just let me stay, I'll pay for everything I eat and drink. It's not going to cost you a penny. Amarle, the host said, Lo. Get out of here. So Barkamsa was so embarrassed. Amrle said, I'll, I'll give you half the, the cost of the meal. If you just let me stay, just don't embarrass me. Can I just sit? Like, please don't throw me out. I'll pay for half the meal. Amrle, oh, no, get out of here. Amrle, 
the, the fellow said back to the host, if you just let me say I'll pay for the whole thing, please don't throw me out. It's so embarrassing. Amarleh, he said, out. Get out of here. Nakte biyade. The host picked the man up physically. And he threw him out of the Suda. During this whole thing, the rabbis were sitting quiet. They watched the scene and they said nothing. Amar, Barkamta said, Since the rabbis were sitting there and they never protested, I understand it didn't bother them. He went and he told the Romans the Jews were about to rebel against Rome. And Rome came and destroyed the Jews. And that was the, that was the destruction of the temple which we're still suffering from today. Okay, end of story. Okay, now, let's go back to the beginning of the sugya. It started. Rabbi Yochanan said, there's a pasuk, how fortunate is the person who's always afraid? To illustrate this, he then tells the story. I understand how was this the answer to Rabbi Yochanan's comment how did this illustrate Rabbi Yochanan's comment where where is the answer here so the Bali Taisvis and the commentaries in Ein Yaakov they both say the same thing the rabbis should have been afraid for two reasons the rabbis should have been afraid A because the Nevi'im had already said the Chorban is coming. The destruction is coming. Yerushalayim is going to be wiped out. The rabbis knew from, from the Nevi'im, if they made any wrong move, Midas Hadin, the forces of destruction, were waiting to come in and destroy them. They should have been afraid of Hashem. They should have been afraid of God. So, when there's something legitimate to be afraid of, because that thing could be a shaliach of Hashem. It could be a messenger of God sent to do a job. And it's, it's not crazy. The Nevim said, they're going to come and destroy. Like, this is not a wild guess. We know what's going to happen. At that point, you have to be afraid of God because God could use that as a messenger. What can this be compared to? A person should be afraid to go skydiving. Not afraid that the ground would hurt them, but afraid that Hashem could use the ground to hurt them. Why is it legitimate to be afraid to go skydiving? That's a good kind of fear. Why? Because it's like the Nevi'im have already told us the Chorban's coming since people die all the time skydiving, as a couple of people died last week. Since people die all the time doing this. So therefore you know that Hashem uses this as a messenger and therefore you have to be afraid. It's not far out, it's not crazy. And therefore you're supposed to be afraid of Hashem that God forbid He might use the skydiving as a way to punish me for my Averis. Revolba pointed out to me an interesting passage in the Torah. Moshe Rabbeinu takes his rod. He throws his rod onto the ground and when his rod hits the ground it turns into a snake. When it turns into a snake the next line is Moshe Rabbeinu jumped back. Revolva asked me, where in the Torah do you see it's a mitzvah to be afraid of snakes? Right there. 
Now, why is it a mitzvah to be afraid of snakes? The answer is because a snake is a reasonable messenger of God. You got to be afraid of snakes; they really do hurt people. What about being afraid that maybe there's a snake here in the base medrash? Okay, that's far out. If a person is afraid that maybe there's a snake here in the base medrash, that's not your shemaim. That's a pachad that was caused by a virus. That's what it was caused by. By the way, I was once lecturing in Brazil. And they took us away to the jungle for the, for the Shabbos. They told us, like, there's wild animals, don't leave the camp, right? The water's poisonous, don't drink it, right? They prepared us. I was lecturing right before third meal. And I was doing this dramatic lecture. And what happened was, at the very end of the lecture, I made this incredible point. As I made this point, I reached my hands forward, and my shirt sleeve came out of my arm, and when my shirt sleeve came out of my arm, a tarantula was sitting on my shirt sleeve. <laughs> he crawled up my leg, up inside my jacket, out through the arm sleeve. The lady screamed, the man passed out. It was a very dramatic ending, yes? Okay. If you're afraid that there's a tarantula on your leg at this moment sitting in this base midrash, that's pachat, that's craziness. It's from isolation. If you're afraid of that in Brazil, that's your shemaim. <laughs> I'll leave you with one last point. We know from all the sources we've seen that pachad, fear, and isolation go hand in hand. And yet I'm telling you, there is one time when it's okay to be afraid, and that is, it's okay to be afraid of Hashem. Now, why is it okay to be afraid of Hashem? We're trying to live in the world of yididus, the world of connection, intimacy, relationship. If I would advocate that you experience some sort of year or pachad in your life, I'm sending you right back into the world of isolation again. So why is it okay to be afraid of Hashem? So the answer is, there's one kind of fear that actually causes closeness. And it's for a very logical reason. Here's the way that it works. Closeness in the physical world is measured by inches. Closeness in the spiritual world is measured by similarity. The more similar you and I are, then the closer we are spiritually. Yeah? I'm Jewish and you're Jewish, we're close. You're also Shomer Shabbos? Me too! Shalom Aleichem! The more similar that we are, then the more spiritually close we become. One of Hashem's most dominant traits is that He has absolute and total awareness of every aspect of reality. Complete awareness. Nothing is hidden from Him. Obviously, He's never mistaken. He sees reality as clear as it could ever be perceived. To the extent that I perceive reality clearly, to that extent, I'm going to be close to Him. When I think that there's something outside of Hashem to fear, and when I think that I'm not afraid of Hashem, so I'm really very far away from God, 
because I'm living in a fantasy world. I'm not plugged into reality at all. God is totally plugged into reality. When I'm not plugged into reality, I'm very far away. However, the opposite is also true. When I realize that Hashem is almighty and therefore worthy of fear, but there is nothing else in the world that I should ever be afraid of besides Hashem. Nothing. To that extent, I'm tuned into reality. And to that extent, therefore, I'm very close to Hashem. So it turns out, fear of Hashem actually creates a closeness. Unlike fear of everything else in the whole world. I'll, I'll leave you with a bracha. The prescriptions for anxiety medicines, as you all realize, have increased in number exponentially in the last 10 years. So have divorces. So have wars. So is all sorts of disconnection. And there's no accident here. We are watching a world which is literally disintegrating. And as it disintegrates, as people become more and more and more separate, anxiety, fears are becoming more and more common to the point where there are many very good people who simply cannot function without medication because they're so locked into the world of aloneness and isolation. Even those people who aren't medicated, the people who have less anxiety, so those people are still feeling much, much more anxiety than they need to be feeling. I'm going to give you a bracha that because you're exposed to this idea and you're a unique crowd on the planet because there's very few people who learn this sort of Torah, because you've been exposed to this idea, may God now give you the courage to walk fearlessly back into the relationships. It's terrifying, once I've done an Avera, to look God in the face and bow to Him. It's terrifying when I'm in a fight with somebody to walk up to them and say, it was my fault, I'm really sorry, can I have a hug? It's terrifying for me to go out for a walk and say, okay, goof, let's have a schmooze. To actually spend time alone with myself. May it be God's will, because you realize how much is at stake, everything is at stake. This is our whole Olam Hazza, the whole purpose of Olam Hazza is at stake. Because you realize that, may it be God's will that He gives you the courage to walk back into the relationships in these three realms. And as a result of the Aliyah that you have, may all those connected to you have an Aliyah. And as a result of that, may all of Kalah Yisrael have an Aliyah. And as a result of that, soon may we see the coming of Mashiach bin Hera Amenu. That concludes our presentation of Ancient Wisdom for Modern Minds by Lawrence Kellerman. For more tapes by Lawrence Kellerman, visit www.lawrencekellerman.com. That's www.lawrencekellerman.com.